0: Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week we're discussing the challenges of delivering healthcare in rural and remote parts of Scotland. With me to discuss that is Dr Marion Slater, consultant physician from Aberdeen Royal Infirmary and Associate Postgraduate Dean for Medicine for the North of Scotland. Dr Slater, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thanks very much for having me. So what are the specific challenges in delivering healthcare in remote and rural communities that are, are different from larger towns and cities? The challenges are multifaceted,
1: Gavin. Um, and interestingly, I'm just out of a discussion with the Royal College of Physician of Edinburgh's remote and rural group. So I've been speaking to a range of colleagues working in rural and remote locations just now. And we've been discussing some of those challenges Geography is clearly um, one of the major challenges, and that's in terms of travel, public transport. We've just been discussing some of the ferry linkages to our island um, locations. So these are all facets that impact not only patients travelling for care, but also staff travelling to and from work, especially as we see increasing models of medical staff um, rotating out from central hospitals to, to deliver that care. The distance travelled as well, I've been hearing just now about challenges in terms of travel times from Inverness to Ness and how it can be more beneficial to fit in extra time in Inverness rather than have uh, consultant surgeons travel up because of the time impact. And the same holds true for other clinics across rural Scotland that so doesn't just have to be our um, deepest highland locations or our island locations, but that can be difficult. And I heard of an example in rural Aberdeenshire. I think lack of specialist or super specialist input can be challenging, including things like diagnostic care so access to access the timely imaging, timely investigations. But the biggest challenge of all is the lack of staff and many rural and remote sites are heavily reliant on locum colleagues. And these are often highly skilled individuals, um, but they're not permanent substantive members of staff for a whole range of reasons. And then there are other challenges, of course, such as accommodation and um, child care,
0: access to flexible study leave policies. So a whole range of challenges, really. So quite a complex problem uh, that we're going to try and solve in the next 20 minutes. Let's see how we go. Um, One of the things you you talked about and said the primary problem was the lack of staff. Um, And in a sort of a no blame situation, why are we in this position where the lack of staff has become the major challenge?
1: Again, I think there are lots of different reasons for this. Um, And I'm going to speak predominantly about medical um, training and medical positions, because that's my area of expertise. But I think this spans um, different um, employment opportunities and health and social care, nursing, um, et cetera. But I think one of the challenges is the nature of some postgraduate training means that the majority of this training is delivered in the larger teaching hospitals or central sites. People then put down roots and they maybe don't have the exposure to the remote and rural placements in their training and then don't consider that as a future career option. I think a lot of healthcare has become very specialised and people lose their confidence in providing those generalist skills. We're looking to address this in some ways through the development of a new rural rural and remote health credential, which provides a framework for the competencies that we feel medical practitioners across a range of specialties, so general practitioners, physicians, it describes um, those competencies that a frontline practitioner would require um, to deliver care in rural and remote settings. So that's one potential solution. And again, I think coming back to the lack of accommodation, I can't emphasize that enough. We have real challenges in providing accommodation for our medical students, for our nursing students, for our doctors in training and their postgraduate posts. Um, and if we can't provide suitable accommodation, then that's a real challenge. And again, the travel can be a barrier. Just getting a doctor in training onto a ferry to get them to an island can be a challenge in itself. Another major barrier is study leave. Um, you know, we're constantly training throughout our careers as doctors and in other professions. But that can be especially difficult if you're in a rural location or an island location. And we can provide some of that education and training virtually, of course. Um, But some things need to be delivered more centrally. And again, we've got the barriers of time for travel and the additional cost. And I think just people feeling that they lack the relevant skills or competencies. So again, coming back to the rural and remote health credential, that attempts to provide a framework for that. A child care and a real lack of child care in rural locations we know that's a barrier and we've studied that previously for doctors and training and often there's a lack of family support unless people have family um, to help with that child care or perhaps even delivering care for older relatives then then that can be a real challenge
0: so i'm a bit of a data geek Do we have the kind of workforce data to actually quantify this problem in order to then see what some of the solutions might be?
1: We are making great strides here and NHS Education for Scotland holds all the workforce data um, for our medical staff and for other groups of staff in Scotland. However, there are huge gaps within that. So definitely working at pace and I think very aware of where those deficits lie but we often don't capture the nuances. Recently I've been looking at posts in acute internal medicine which is one of our key specialties that delivers that emergency frontline 24-hour care and equips our doctors well to work in more rural and remote locations but trying to describe the numbers uh, and where the vacancies are, where the gaps lie, that's been really difficult. So we don't always capture that accurately. A real challenge for medical posts is that we don't have good data on vacant posts. So for consultant vacancies, the reality often doesn't match with the published data, uh, because we don't often continue to Describe these posts as vacant if they've been unfilled for more than six months. I think another challenge is the mapping training posts, so postgraduate training posts in medicine to areas of greatest need. And how do we describe that need? How do we define that? Does that match to population size? Is it matched to our Scottish deprivation index data? Um, So these are are gaps that we're trying to work on as well. Um, And there's no repository of career intentions across
0: specialties either so it, it can be very challenging. So I, I can see that and that will make it very hard to address the problem if you don't know where your starting point is. I want to take you away from the clinicians and the staff to the patients now and uh, and again from a sort of a data perspective are there differences in the kind of cohorts in, in some of these rural and remote communities. Uh, what does the data tell us about social determinants of healthcare in those areas? What, what kind of cross-section of population do we have living there?
1: So Again, the data would describe that there are some real positives to living in rural and remote locations. There are many positives, but the data that we have and the positives that they describe would say that we often have lower rates of crime, higher neighbourhood satisfaction, higher rates of volunteering. But the data definitely describe barriers to education, barriers to employment and to health and social care services um, distance to essential shops and costs to travellers and limited public transport, of course. We know that fuel poverty can be a real issue for our citizens living in remote and rural locations. And of course, Audit Scotland just last week described the unique challenges around mental health and accessing services um, describing those as slow and complicated. And these factors exert a growing influence over a person's lifetime. So they're cumulative. And we have some good data to say that smoking in pregnancy is 11 times higher in the most deprived centile in Scotland, which often links to our rural and remote locations. And um, we've got similar data around drug
0: day, for example. So we're seeing a similar link between poverty and deprivation and health as we would in many areas. But we're then adding to that the complications of some of these remote locations in terms of travel and access to services as well. Yes, that's right. You mentioned mental health and uh, it'd be interesting to uh if there's any data or or information about the 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 challenges of mental health in these particular communities Mm -hmm.
1: so i don't have any specific data around that and i as regards postgraduate medical training look after the physicianly specialty so mental health is a separate specialty to that so i wouldn't have any accurate data around that but we know that Even in our urban locations, accessing mental health services is extremely difficult and has been a real focus of attention for some time. And there's definitely a a huge amount of work that needs to be done uh, to support that. But it's not a specific area of expertise for me.
0: So we talked about lots of problems. Obviously, uh, the Scottish Government, amongst many others, and Scottish NHS, have a, a whole range of things that they need to do. What are some of the actions they need to take? Is it recruiting? Is it training? Is it gathering more data? What are the things that that are needed here? So again, just as my answers to your first couple of questions,
1: I think the answers are multifaceted. I think there are lots of different actions that need to be taken. First and foremost, we need to look at how we increase the number of staff we have working in rural and remote locations, how we support them, How we ensure that we are ensuring that these staff, that our colleagues have the correct training, that that is flexible, accessible, equitable training, that ensures that they are adaptable and competent and able to work in different environments. We need to work with those who are responsible for that training um, across the different healthcare disciplines, across social care. And I think we can do some work towards streamlining education and training. At the moment, we work very much in professional silos, as lots of other areas do, um, but there are lots of shared capabilities, shared competencies, shared challenges for our health and social care professionals. Um, And I think that there needs to be improved accountability around workforce. So I think it's been a very positive step that we now have a central repository for our NHS workforce data held within NHS Education for Scotland, but we need to ensure that Within the workforce plan, there are clear lines of accountability and that we have a robust and sustainable plan for how we develop, that we have the right types of staff, the right seniority, the right skill mix. We really must look at retention as well. We have huge vacancies across across health and social care, and it's going to take time to train people into these roles, and some roles obviously take longer than others, but we need to upskill colleagues. So I know... As I um, progress through my middle age, I find some of the digital skills and keeping abreast of those a real challenge. I think upskilling colleagues, and I know that there's been some excellent work in social care around that, in upskilling people around their digital um, capabilities. And we need to remove financial disincentives, I think, for people um, who might be willing to work in rural and remote or train in rural and remote locations. So we've got the benefit in kind tax, so even where we're able to offer accommodation, people are then taxed on that accommodation and it can put people off applying for posts in the first place. And we need to recognise the need for different skill sets. So because of all the vacancies within health and social care, I think we're very much focused on front door. We're very much focused on clinicians delivering that front line clinical care but we need to be sure that we have time to train our future consultants our future senior nurses our future social care colleagues and so we need to ensure that there is that time to train but fundamentally we need to address the social determinants of health and you know we've touched on those already and these are wide-ranging we need access to high quality early child care Um, and intervention, and that's a critical social determinant of health through multiple pathways, including educational attainment. We need to ensure that there is a decent living wage. I was just hearing from social care colleagues, for example, that there are jobs being advertised in the co-op that pay more than what the First Minister has pledged to bring social care colleagues um, minimum hourly wage up to. So if we don't address these challenges, then it's going to be very difficult.
0: So being part of the Foundation for Science and Technology, I can't not ask you about technology. And we see a whole lot of developments of technology in the healthcare sector. And to what extent, in amongst all these other things that you've talked about, which need to happen, but to what extent can some of these new technology some of these new ways of moving data and and other things help improve healthcare in in some of these more remote locations?
1: So I think that's a very good question. And I think a key area is around education and training. And we're now able to deliver a vast amount of that education and training through virtual platforms so that people don't have to travel for that, so that we can share learning, share understanding. Um, There are fantastic rural and remote Grand rounds where clinicians can come together to discuss patient care. So, all of that has been aided, of course, by developments in digital technology. Sims, the simulated training, has also advanced um, our offer significantly and how we can provide some of that training when colleagues are caught up delivering that frontline care. And I don't mean caught up, but when they when the focus is perhaps on that frontline clinical care rather than the education and training. So we're able to deliver a lot of simulated training across a range of different specialties now as well. Home monitoring as well has been a great success in certain areas. So patients able to monitor their own conditions at home and that data is fed back to relevant clinicians uh, centrally um, who can monitor that and look at that and help to advise minimizing travel and there have been huge advances in diagnostics of course as well remote support and consultation you know through video conferencing or virtual clinics near me clinics and then there are the, the more advanced technologies such as being able to send capsule endoscopy test kits to rural and island locations so that patients don't have to travel in to do these tests that they can be done at home and sent back The key, though, um, is do we have the workforce analyze the data? Do we have the workforce to keep developing the technologies? And then also that we need appropriate training frameworks around this. So, for example, a lot of the robotic surgery that's being developed, that's not included in any postgraduate training curricula at the moment. So these all need to be developed in tandem so that people are learning how to use these, how to monitor
0: how that impact patient care. So it sounds like there's definitely a contribution that sounds like as in other areas of the UK these technologies are already being used but it's it's one part of a much bigger problem and and some of the other parts if they're not there the technology can't can't do anything. I want to take you in a different direction in in the question before last when you were talking about what the government needed to do and, and so on you mentioned social care and within other parts of uh, Scotland and other parts of the UK, one of the issues with adult social care is obviously that the healthcare system gets full of people who could actually leave it, but there's no adult social care for them to go to. And I'd just give us a feel for what some of those issues look like in, in rural and remote communities. Are they the same? Are they different? How do they compare?
1: It's a very interesting question, Gavin, and it's it has a huge impact on social care and how we deliver that. And it's a huge impact on people who are caught in the system waiting for social care or waiting for other aspects of it and on their family. I was lucky enough to undertake a leadership programme across health and social care last year and to work really closely in that with social care and social work colleagues, try to share that understanding. I, on my own, was unable to access any good data. My suspicion is that access to healthcare in rural locations is much harder and uh, more sparse than it is in urban locations. But could I find any hard data to support that? No, I couldn't. So I reached out to social care colleagues, but not enough time. And I have some conversations set up because I think that's a really interesting angle to explore. But certainly we know that lack of access to social care is a challenge across all of Scotland and across all of our geographies. And I have some anecdotal data fed back from social care colleagues to say that it's a real challenge in the borders, for example, which is our most rural mainland location. But it's really uh, a challenge everywhere. Some of the data that I read yesterday, a new report that says that we now have more social care staff than ever before but we also have more vacancies than ever before and I think the increase in staff reflects the investment in early childcare. care so we've expanded staff in those areas but in actual fact the vacancy rates for older adults for care at home in nursing homes etc these are increasing
0: So we're certainly not making any inroads there. And that's absolutely critical. Well, just to finish off, we're coming to the end of our time, but I want to put you on the spot a little bit. So so let's imagine by some very strange twist of fate that you're appointed as a minister in the Scottish Government to make a step change in sort of health, uh, and if you like health and social care, particularly in these remote and rural communities. What are going to be your sort of, top priorities for action over the next few years. So this is a question I love to ask myself regularly. What would
1: I do or what 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 could I do? What would I wish for? And I wouldn't immediately go to something that's directly healthcare related. I think our priority has to be childcare. I think enabling parents to work and reducing inequalities and poverty. I think investment in our early years with education and lifelong learning are critical as well, because we know that this has such an impact on health and later life. We need access to fair employment with good work and a minimum income for healthy life. And I think through all of that, these are all prevention strategies, if you like, um, which is really where I feel that the focus needs to be. Um, We need to invest in clean air, clean water, in our environment and investment in renewable energy. And of course, we need to look at tackling discrimination as well. And I think all of these are absolutely critical to shaping the way forward. Nothing happens in isolation. Of course, we need to invest in primary care. There's no doubt about that. We need to improve the services that we're able to offer. We need to increase the number of staff that we have in primary care and in public health. Again, with that focus on ill health prevention, including social determinants. And of course, we need to invest in social care and we need to make sure that these careers are attractive, that they're well remunerated and that we're enabling people within these careers to develop themselves personally and professionally and um, so that we are continuing to recruit. I think we need better reporting on workforce data annually. And we need to take account of technology and innovation in planning and training our future workforce. And we also need involvement of our communities to create and develop our communities and to
0: support better health longer term. Well, that's a a fantastic programme for action. Um, You're obviously not the minister, but let's see over the next uh, few years how well the Scottish government and those people who are responsible take some of those things forward. Uh, That's all we've got time for today. But uh, Dr Marion Slater, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Dr Marion Slater, consultant physician from the Aberdeen Royal Infirmary and associate postgraduate dean for medicine north of Scotland. Information about the Foundation for Science and Technology, including all our events, blogs, journals, and all previous editions of this podcast can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. Until the next time, goodbye.